Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this Standard Forum event. It's a great pleasure to have so many of you here. This is the second event in a series of Standard Forum lectures and debates that we're kicking off this term. And um, we're very grateful to have such a distinguished panel of speakers here tonight. Uh, my name is Robert Faulkner. I'm the academic director of the Donda Forum here at LSE. And uh, before I introduce the speaker, I'll say a few words about the forum itself, what it does, and uh, where it came from, and then we'll go straight into the evening's lecture. The Donda Forum is a collaboration between the LSE, the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin, and Stiftung Mercator. It's great to see our colleagues from the Hertie School here. Um, we were created back in 2011 in honor of Lord Ralph Darndorf, the great German social theorist, who was also, of course, director of the LSE from 1974 till 1984. Uh, the project, which is based at LSE Ideas within the Institute of Global Affairs, is essentially a forum, a platform for debate, debating Europe, debating Europe's future, and tackling those sort of challenges that perhaps require more careful analysis and thought. And it's also a place for involving a different range of people from academics to practitioners of diplomacy and the public at large. Uh, it was Lord Dandoff's challenge to academics to, as he said, always ask the questions that no one dares to ask. And so in that critical spirit, the Dando Forum seeks to stimulate debate, critical debate, and I very much look forward to engaging you all in this today. We will try to make this as interactive as possible. Let me introduce our speakers for tonight. I'll do this in alphabetical order, but also in the order in which they will speak. Uh, Robert Cooper, Sir Robert Cooper, to my left, is Senior Fellow of the Dando Forum here at LSE. He's an advisor to the OECE panel of eminent persons on European security. After a distinguished career in British diplomacy, he worked for 10 years for the European Union High Representative, first Solana, and then later Cathy Ashton, where he helped to get the EU External Action Service off the ground. At different times, he was involved in the development of the EU security policy. He was involved in negotiations with Iran over the nuclear question and on issues in the Balkans. He has write, he's written regularly on international affairs and is widely known for his 2003 book called The Breaking of Nations. To Robert's left is Wolfgang Ischinger. Ambassador Ischinger has been chairman of the Munich Security Conference since 2008. He's currently the chair of the OECE panel of eminent persons on European security. He's a professor at the Hertie School, and he's also a Darndorf Forum Fellow. He has been Germany's ambassador to London from 2006 to 2008. He was, prior to that, the ambassador to the United States, and prior to that, Staatssekretär in the German Foreign Office. He represented in 2007 the European Union in the Troika negotiations on the future of Kosovo. Last but not least is Karen Smith. Karen is a colleague of mine, Professor of International Relations here at the LSE. She's an expert on the international relations of Europe. She has published seminal texts on this topic, including a recent book on genocide and Europe, and, of course, the widely read textbook, European Union Foreign Policy, 
in a changing world. I think it's out in third edition now, available at the bookshop. <laughs> don't worry, you don't need to uh, pay that back. And she also directs the LSE's European Foreign Policy Unit. Right, this is the speaking order. I've asked each speaker to speak for about 10 to 15 minutes. We want to keep it relatively brief to get as many of your questions in. I will then invite uh, comments from the panel. I will probably take questions in groups, uh, but before we get to that, let's start with our opening statements. Please do join me in welcoming our panel tonight. Well, it's, uh, it's nice to be here, but I won't go on saying that for a long time because there's only 10 minutes. I, um, uh, the, the subject is, I think, the, the crisis in European security. And therefore, when I talk about Europe, I'm talking about Europe, you know, not the European Union, but a much wider Europe than that. And, um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about security, and then I'm going to say something about cooperation, because the organization with which Wolfgang and I are involved at the moment is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. And to my mind, the two things go together. Um, uh, first of all, um, uh, world orders uh, are, um, at bottom, uh, territorial orders. Um, the world is divided up into territories, and everybody has their own laws, and therefore the question of territory is, essential, is a central question of, of order. Um, uh, and that's why uh, the breakup of states is something that causes a disturbance in, um, in the foreign policy world, and the seizure of territory by other states causes alarm. Uh, and that's what's going on at the moment, and that's why uh, I think we ought to be worried. If you look at, the, um, at what happens after wars, um, the answer is primarily what you finish up with is a territorial settlement. Um, the Congress of Vienna, it did all kinds of things, uh, but the biggest arguments were about redrawing the lines on the map. Uh, the, um, the Versailles negotiations did the same thing. Again, the real business was settling the territory. After World War II, um, uh, there was no such conference and there was no immediate territorial settlement. Territorial settlement after World War II, in some sense, came with the Helsinki Conference. Um, uh, the, this conference had been proposed by Molotov in the 1950s. Um, uh, by the time the conference took place, the territory in Europe had been more or less settled. Um, it had become clear uh, through Hungary in 1956 and Czechoslovakia in 68 um, that the West was not planning to intervene in Eastern Europe no matter how many bad things happened there. Um, and uh, uh, around the same time, around 
following 68, you had uh, a German government which was negotiating treaties with Poland and with the Soviet Union, um, and negotiations with Berlin began at the same time. And they were, in fact, a condition, the success of the Berlin negotiations was a condition of the Helsinki Conference. So the Helsinki Conference was, in some sense, a conference which settled or ratified a territorial settlement uh, in Europe. It did some other things as well. Um, uh, it put um, what is in OSCE parlance called the human dimension, which is to do with uh, human rights, rights of peoples, on the, on the agenda. Um, and it also put economic uh, things on the agenda as well. But there was, and actually following the Helsinki conference, a series of steps were taken because then both sides kind of felt that they knew where they were, and a series of steps were taken. This was the age of détente. And it, détente had its ups and downs, but um, through um, 75 through to 89, there was a period where the fundamental question had been solved and people could get on with doing business better and trade increased and uh, there were uh, arms control and confidence-building measures and this kind of thing went on. But the basis of this was the territorial settlement. Then, with 1989, this territorial settlement came to an end um, uh, because uh, everything was up for grabs. Uh, the Warsaw Pact dissolved, uh, and then the Soviet Union dissolved. And, the and then, after that, you get a period of uh, Russian weakness and Western expansion. And the Western expansion is both NATO and the European Union. So you have altogether a different territorial picture emerging from what you had in 1975. And where we are now is... Um, that uh, uh, the question is being, is being asked in a rather brutal fashion uh, by Russia about the nature of the territorial settlement. The declarations after uh, 1989 um, were about a liberal order in which everyone was free to choose their own destiny, whether they were going to Actually, this is in Helsinki as well, whether you were going to be a member of an alliance or not. And that was the atmosphere after 1979, and that is now being challenged by Russia. Uh, so that's really the point. The challenge that uh, we have now is one of those fundamental challenges which one should think of as being um, a, a disturbance of a post-war settlement or something that calls for another settlement. Because if you don't know whose territory is owned by whom, then you don't know anything about the international order. This is a fundamental disturbance. So that's what I wanted to say about security. And then I wanted to say one other thing about, say something about cooperation as well, because it's, this is OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Uh, I think that the two go together. If you, the best form, you can have security in different ways. You can have security by having a lot of nuclear weapons and a big army, or you can have security by having good political relations with people. Good political relations come with cooperation. 
If you look at the UK, um, it's got a neighbor which has got, a, I think, probably larger army than Britain uh, and nuclear weapons, France. Um, but nobody worries about it because the political relationship is very strong and, and we're actually very secure. Um, uh, uh, and this is actually the best, most secure form. Uh, security comes from cooperation. Um, uh, this doesn't really exist in the continent of Europe as a whole. There is no strong continental organization. Um, uh, the, the organizations that really matter in Europe are NATO and the European Union. Um, uh, the characteristic of these organizations is that they are not just bodies where people meet and have discussions and pass resolutions. They're bodies which actually do something. They both have executives. NATO has got a very large military staff. It's capable of joint military action. European Union has got uh, not as large sometimes as the Daily Telegraph tells you, but it's also got, it's a large organization uh, which actually does a lot. Um, and the point that I wanted to make is that you get cooperation not just by sitting around a table saying it would be very nice to work together, let's agree to do something. The only form of cooperation that really works and really lasts is cooperation which is based on joint ownership of an executive body. Um, which is what happens with NATO and the EU. This doesn't exist in, uh, in what you might call OSCE Europe. If we had wanted, after 1989, to create something like the, uh, the very undefined dream of the common European home, we would have needed to have created a real pan-European body with real powers, real capabilities, real budgets, that sort of thing, which would have been jointly owned by everybody. Um, nobody talked about this at the time, and I think most people are probably against it now. It's certainly true that the, uh, uh, that the Russians show absolutely no inclination to have anything of the sort, and I think the Americans are probably against it as well. Um, uh, but that's just a way of showing you how far away we are from having anything that could be described as real cooperation in this environment. And that makes the current security crisis all the more dangerous. Great. Thank you very much, Robert. I'll hand over straight to Ambassador Ishinga. Do I push the button? No. It works? It works like this? Okay. Well, first of all, let me say how how happy I am to be, uh, to be back here at the LSE. I was here a couple of times during my rather brief tour as a German ambassador. And speaking of Germany, let me start by making a point about my own country. Um, as we sit here and discuss the future, or the present and the future, of European security, at the German embassy they celebrate... Uh, 25 years of unification uh, tonight. On the 3rd of October was our anniversary day. And one of the, uh, uh, let me tell you why I mentioned this, one of the lessons which I personally uh, tried to define as one of my takeaways from the process of German unification 25 years ago is a very simple um, 
a point, namely that there is literally nothing in international relations. There is nothing, there's no problem in international policy that is categorically impossible to be resolved. If someone tells you that there's a problem that no one can solve, just tell him, look at Germany. Uh, my own countrymen, my entire generation, and the previous generation thought, even though we had written the idea of unification into our uh, Grundgesetz, uh, our basic law, we thought that maybe was something, was a dream, maybe for some future generation, but probably not, or most certainly not in our lifetime. It happened. Uh, it happened. It, something happened which every, almost everybody considered impossible to achieve. So, first lesson, nothing is impossible. Second point, uh, I think what we also learned in the process of trying to handle the problems of the Cold War and, and, and the problems of the um, two Germanys, which were a serious problem, of course, uh, in the post-war situation, Cold War situation in Europe, um, we learned um, that in diplomacy, sometimes it is useful not to try to solve every problem, every part of the problem, if it's a big problem, at once. Maybe you can put the kind of problem that you know you can't solve at this moment, you put that aside, you put it in brackets, and you leave it for the day when maybe conditions are going to be slightly more favorable. I call that for those of you who have studied uh, uh, post-war uh, history, I call this the Egon Barr approach to foreign policy because he uh, managed to convince both German states at the time that we shouldn't even try to resolve the fundamental dispute between these two uh, uh, sovereign countries at the time about what kind of future Germany should have. The GDR believed there should be forever two countries and, of course, we thought that there should be unification, diametrically opposed views. The decision was, let's put that quarrel aside and let's try to find some uh, concrete, pragmatic steps that would allow East Germans and West Germans, even though we had this fundamental dispute, to meet with each other, work with each other, and maybe even trade with each other. Third point, now going back to our big issue here tonight, um, I, I simply want to underline uh, what I think is, a, uh, is really an important point, especially for a generation like you who have not uh, had the misfortune of growing up during the Cold War period when there was the ever-present risk of nuclear war, which we tried to deter uh, by having nuclear weapons. Uh, the situation today in Europe represents grave risks, grave danger to uh, 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 the security of all of us, not only the security of Ukrainians uh, and some of their neighbors. It's a problem 
for uh, all of Europe, which is why we take, Bob and I take the work we are trying to do in the context of this OSCE mandated panel um, of, uh, of eminent persons, we try to take this very seriously because we think it's urgent um, and I happen to share the view that uh, the risks of unintended escalation uh, because of some accidental uh, misunderstanding in the airspace either over Syria or over Ukraine or over the Baltics or over the uh, North Atlantic uh, are enormous. Do not forget, as you think about these issues, that we still have more than enough, even, even though we've had an, a number of strategic arms control arrangements between the United States and the Soviet Union and later with Russia, we still have uh, far too many strategic nuclear weapons. And the warning time, the warning time, the, uh, the, the, the launch time for these weapons is still extremely short. In other words, this is really serious stuff. Why, and this is why we really need to get beyond uh, this present uh, uh, serious security crisis. Um, now, I don't want to repeat anything that uh, Bob has said. Let me just add two uh, brief points just to provoke you, hopefully, a little bit to think about this. Uh, the the present crisis, in my view, is of course not only about Crimea or the future of Ukraine. This crisis is about something far deeper. It's about uh, the status quo or the principle of change um, in, our, in our present and, and future world. Um, I think what our friends in Moscow have not sufficiently understood, at least not so far, is that our world, not only the foreign policy world, but the manufacturing world, the social world, the social media world, is changing the way we live, and, the, and, and, and it's also changing the way countries relate to each other, changes the relative power of countries. It changes the, the relative value of the military versus uh, non-military elements of power in a more revolutionary way than has been the case over the last 100 or 200 years. I think we live in an, in an enormously accelerating period of change. Those who are not trying to um, control through repressive methods, the opinion of their citizens, of course, have a great advantage. Because those who try in this, in this future world in which we are, we are currently growing into, those who continue to try to be in control as a state of how their citizens are supposed to think and what they are not allowed to think, say, or do, uh, I believe they will be overwhelmed by the fact that people will simply know better and know more and know more much more quickly than some people in, uh, who, who currently are in control of certain governments could imagine, which is why 
I think our kind of system will turn out at the, in, in the long run to be far superior to, to, to the kinds of systems that try to stay in, in control. Which is why I think, just to give you the point, Russia today, of course, has inherited uh, the legacy of the Soviet Union. And if you think for a moment how the Soviet Union acted for half, not quite half a century as, or actually more than half a century, as um, the country that had a mission of creating and exporting a world revolution. This same country, Russia, has now turned itself into the guardian of the status quo. Russia has become the country which does not want to see a regime change anywhere. Russia was the country that was angry when the United States decided to drop Mubarak. Russia was more than angry uh, when uh, military action by some Western countries led to the disappearance of Colonel Gaddafi in Libya. And Russia panicked, literally, when uh, President Yanukovych in February of last year decided to uh, 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 continue his career outside his own country and, 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 <coughs> and leave the presidency of Ukraine behind. Of course, from a Russian point of view, at least some Russians thought that this was all engineered by the CIA or by some other uh, Western manipulations. But I think that is, of course, extremely short-sighted. Uh, I think that uh, uh, Russia, by trying to hold on to what is, uh, is going to be in the long term, in terms of, 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 of where the allies are, where the friends are, where the supporters are, is going to be more on the, on the losing end. So think about change versus uh, status quo in terms of where we are all positioning ourselves, we, the European countries, the United States, Russia, and others. Uh, my very last point um, uh, is one about, you know, how did we come to this uh, rather serious and grave controversy which we're having today. Um, and I want to just highlight one specific point. Some of our NATO um, member countries and friends are today uh, demanding that regardless of what kinds of views others may have, uh, NATO enlargement should go forward. In, in other words, come hell or high water, we move forward. I want to remind you that when uh, 20 years ago, in 1995, the idea of NATO enlargement became a concrete project. Um, the, 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 the philosophy of our countries at the time was not and I repeat, was not a philosophy that assumed that we would enlarge NATO against the Russian Federation. 
the idea at the time was that we were going to do this because our eastern neighbors, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, the Baltic states, etc., etc., uh, wanted to be part of the Western family, but we went to the United States, the Germans and others, of course the United Kingdom also. We went to great lengths to have intense debates with the Russian leadership to make sure that Russia would at least tolerate the decisions to enlarge NATO, which Russia actually did because Russia signed a NATO-Russia agreement uh, in the mid-90s, which was considered to be part of a package program. So uh, I'm, I, I only mention this because it is important to consider how this whole program of NATO enlargement was created. It was not supposed to lead to a new division of Europe. And I want to conclude by returning to the item of German unification. On the day of German unification, the then president federal president of the Federal Republic of Germany uh, gave a speech and he said, and I can't quote this verbatim uh, from memory, but uh, what he said amounted to the following. He said, what we now should work for is to make sure that the wall which we're now tearing down here in Berlin and through Germany is not going to be moved to the western border of the then still existing Soviet Union. In other words, our goal ought to be a wall-free, a Europe free of walls. And I think that is still a good idea to pursue. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll now ask Karen Smith to respond. Great. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much. On the subject of walls, uh, of course, uh, they are going up uh, left, right, and center in uh, uh, parts of Europe uh, as as we speak. Um, I, it's useful, I think, always listening to diplomats because uh, one is reassured, I think. I, I came away thinking, goodness, the crisis isn't as bad as I thought it was. We will just... Um, We'll, you know, we'll, uh, we'll be able to chat and, and talk it over. And, I, and then I'm going to go to bed tonight. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to wake up again thinking about the nukes and the, the, Rus- the Ruskies and all the rest of it. Um, uh, so I, I think I want to probe, uh, probe uh, uh, my, uh, my distinguished uh, panelists on the nature of the crisis uh, of uh, European uh, security. Um, I think it's more than Russia. Uh, I mean, Russia is clearly an, an issue here, uh, but we have walls going up <laughs> in, in uh, parts of Europe uh, in response to other uh, crises, uh, which demonstrate a severe uh, lack of unity within West, the Western sort of uh, sector of Europe, even though uh, uh, 25 years ago they weren't uh, necessarily in the West. But in other words, there is um, the crisis, I think, is... Uh, uh, externally uh, uh, generated. I mean, we, have, we are in an arc of crisis. We are surrounded by an arc of crisis like one that we haven't been surrounded uh, by for uh, decades. Um, and we have internal uh, crises uh, generated, apparently, by a complete lack of agreement on how to handle uh, those crises. And so then, so I guess I want to probe you more on the seriousness of, of the crisis uh, that, is, uh, that we are uh, facing. Uh, and then uh, probe you also 
on how, given the disunity uh, that we see uh, within uh, Europe, how we can uh, handle these particular uh, issues. Now, uh, Robert began with um, a a kind of a discussion about the the creation of the order, uh, uh, post-Cold War order, uh, in in Europe. And uh, much of the emphasis was then on the sort of the Helsinki Final Act, which led to the OSCE, which is natural, I think, given uh, the the positions that both hold now um, uh, vis-a-vis OSCE, the panel of experts and whatnot. Uh, But, of course, the the order that... um, that was created after uh, the Cold War ended was one in which the EU and NATO did take uh, prime positions. And in 1995, there was quite a serious discussion about whether NATO enlargement should go ahead. And there were a good deal of uh, scholars and observers who said it was a bad idea because, in fact, it would um, threaten Russia, no matter how many agreements were signed uh, uh, and, and whatnot. But we ended up with an order based on EU and NATO gradually enlarging and then having sort of hub-and-spoke relations with outsiders, including uh, Russia. But we ended up with an EU-NATO-dominated European uh, order, and therefore the solution to any crisis in European security, we naturally look to them, I think, to those particular institutions. However... The current crisis in both uh, uh, organizations, but above all, I think, uh, the European Union, leads one to doubt whether or not they can indeed then continue to guarantee, serve, foster, promote, whatever, uh, European order. Uh, And so I want to probe you a little bit more on this. Um, First of all, should the EU and NATO continue uh, to enlarge? I'm getting a little bit tired, in fact, of of hearing uh, various commentary out there that says that if only the EU had let in Ukraine, none of this uh, would have happened, as though you wave a magic wand um, and EU membership happens and your problems are are over. Uh, But but nonetheless, the problem is that that issue is overhanging. Should should enlargement uh, continue? In other words, is the future of European order one in which EU and NATO continue uh, to enlarge? Because that's the, the one issue. The second uh, uh, sort of question I want to ask about the institutional architecture that could perhaps handle this crisis is the relationship between the institutions. And as far as I understand it, EU and NATO still are not uh, formally uh, talking uh, to each other. Um, In other words, there is a serious issue of um, institutional interlocking or, you know, that potentially become uh, interblocking. So I, I just would like to sound you out then on how you see the future institutional architecture of, of Europe, uh, what should be the sort of the, the balance of burden sharing uh, between uh, these institutions can do. Are you positive? Do you have, you know, are you optimistic about the possibility of these institutions re- reaching some sort of modus vivendi in which there can be greater uh, cooperation given uh, the seriousness of the, the arc of crisis uh, that uh, surrounds us? Um, and then the, the one other thing I did want to ask, just because you have brought up uh, Ukraine, is how are we going to help Ukraine? How are you going to um, help? How should not you? I mean, personally, but I mean, how are we going to uh, uh, help uh, Ukraine? And what do you? How would you judge 
our efforts uh, thus far uh, in terms of, of helping uh, Ukraine. Um, I'm minded, uh, you know, that uh, when you have corruption as extensive as it is in a country, do you throw in more money? Do you, I mean, what, you know, how could we possibly uh, help uh, Ukraine? As some, um, some have said that the best, one of the best uh, solutions to the crisis of European order uh, would be, in fact, uh, if Ukraine were to survive as a viable, democratic, capitalist, uh, non-corrupt, uh, human rights-promoting uh, uh, country. That would be the best um, <laughs> the best uh, sort of uh, solution, but how are we going uh, to get there given the external um, contestation of the current security order and the internal contestation of the the current uh, security order? So I'd just be interested to hear uh, your views on that. Fantastic. Thank you, Karen. I think we got off to a good start here. Before I open the floor, I think it's only fair for me to give the two speakers uh, a chance to respond to Karen's questions. Um, There were several that that were listed, uh, so I'll leave it to you to decide which ones you want to pick up now, but I suspect the audience will come back with many more in just a short while. Robert, would you like to start? Let let me first say there's a... I think that there is a kind of natural... There's a natural logic to enlargement. Um, And I used to think, when I think of the European Union, there's a quotation from Catherine the Great, who says, reputedly, uh, I have no way to defend my borders but to extend them. Um, And uh, and it works like this. The... um, uh, Europe was uh, created uh, during the Cold War and there was a clear, and there was a wall at the east and we knew where it ended. After that, um, uh, Germany uh, finds itself suddenly on the edge of Europe and it has lots of neighbors and it would rather that those neighbors were well-governed, prosperous people than unstable Uh, uh, countries and uh, Germany was one of the um, leading advocates of enlargement of the European Union. No doubt that wasn't the only motive but there's a good geopolitical motive for wanting to do that because the one thing that does seem to work if you want to stabilize a country is that the promise of joining the European Union you get people to do things they would otherwise never dream of doing. So Um, And now what you find is this, um, I think, minor miracle having worked, particularly in Poland, which is a very successful country. They look at their neighbors and they think, well, wouldn't it be better if our neighbors were also not unstable, corrupt countries who half invite other people to invade them? Um, Wouldn't it be good if they were a really uncorrupt, well-governed, prosperous country. We could all really live happily ever after then. So there's a natural tendency to enlarge. You feel more secure if you have more secure, better governed neighbors. And enlargement is the way in which you, you get that. So that's a, also, it's a kind of answer to your Karen's second question. Well, how do you deal with the problem of a really bad country? We're really bad at reforming really bad countries. Um, uh, Afghanistan is a good example of how difficult it is. Afghanistan is a very extreme 
country if you want to take on and reform a country. I think Afghanistan should really be low on the list. Um, uh, but, uh, but this is a really difficult job because um, you can do lots of things in, in, in a foreign country. You can give them money. You can give them advice. But what you can't do is you can't run the politics uh, and you can't reform a country unless you have got... It has to be done by them. Outsiders can't do it. We used to have uh, an organization in Britain which was quite good at running foreign countries called the Colonial Office. But... Uh, <coughs> but uh, it is debatable, that point, right? Well, it depends on the point of view, I think, is the answer there. Um, uh, but anyway, it's not a viable solution today. Um, uh, and actually, you can't... You, you can't... You can't reform other people's countries. No matter, and pouring money in, sending experts in, it doesn't do it. They have to do it. You find the people who want to do it, you can help them. Uh, but you've got to get those people. With enlargement of the European Union, which I think has been actually a big success for the countries that have joined the European Union, that gave them, that, that produced the extra ingredient that makes it possible. Uh, Ukraine is so far away from being a viable candidate for enlargement that one can hardly begin to speak about it at this moment. But um, uh, those, things, those things go together. Um, but, you, but you can't begin with Ukraine. So it's got to get past the difficult stage. And then I just finish having quoted Catherine the Great. I quote, um, I quote Machiavelli. Um, uh, that uh, Machiavelli says in the discourses, um, it's extremely difficult to find someone to, f to reform a corrupted state because you need to find somebody who is very good to want to do it and very bad to be able to do it because the methods used have to be extremely rough. Okay. You, 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 you speak of Mikhail Shakashvili in Odessa. We'll see. Yes, yes. Maybe. Yes, maybe. Maybe, maybe he'll do something anyway. I'd like to, um, again, I'd, I'd like uh, not, not to try to echo or repeat uh, Robert's points. Let me try to tackle the uh, NATO enlargement question, which you addressed. Um, should enlargement continue? Look, in the, in the mid-'90s, when uh, we, I mean NATO allies, discussed the question, what might be the conditionalities of enlargement? Uh, we, uh, I think it was a, a British diplomat who came up with the following tripartite set of questions. Three simple questions, uh, which we applied to this problem. And I think these simple questions uh, might be usefully applied today, and that would answer your question. First question, is the country, uh, is the candidate country united, united in its desire to become a member of this organization? Now, if you apply this question, for example, if you applied it 10 years, five years, two years ago, even today, to Ukraine, you would need to acknowledge that there are some folks in Ukraine 
who don't like the idea of NATO enlargement. Uh, second question, uh, are the members of NATO, the current members of NATO, united in their willingness to invite this country to be a member of NATO and to, do, and to defend, in case of conflict, uh, the territorial integrity of that country with their own armed forces? Um, quite frankly, uh, in the case of Poland, in the case of Hungary, in the case even of the Baltic states, NATO members thought that was okay because the, the environment at the moment of, uh, of that decision was such that the Russian Federation was not going to threaten to, dis to deploy new uh, or short-range nuclear weapons somewhere in, in its western neighborhood. The Russian Federation decided to tolerate it, which is why we thought that was an acceptable kind of risk. And the third question, which is the most important one, was are we convinced that uh, the membership of this particular candidate country in NATO will serve to enhance rather than to damage European security as a whole. And we decided at, uh, in 95 that we would only invite those countries where the answer to all three questions was going to be affirmative, a yes. Um, and I think if you apply this, this little test with the three questions to the current situation in Ukraine, whether one likes it or not, one has to say, not ready. Uh, same thing in Georgia, uh, which is why I would say Montenegro is fine. I have not heard anyone, uh, anyone serious uh, being opposed to the membership of Montenegro. So maybe Montenegro will be the next member of NATO in, at the uh, uh, summit in Warsaw next year. Uh, that's okay. Uh, but uh, I think the, the three-question test is a useful one. Okay, good. I think we can open it out now. So we have uh, plenty of time to take your questions. I may need to group them into groups of two or three if there are too many. Uh, I will then ask the panelists to respond. They will choose the questions they think they would like to respond to. Otherwise, we'll be here for a very, very long time. Um, so could I invite now for questions from the audience. I'm going to start right at the top, and then I'll work my way down. Can we start right there? Thank you. Hello. Uh, can you please explain what's the purpose of NATO and who is it defending from? The purpose of NATO? Yeah. yeah. Who it is defending? From, yes. From. Okay, where's the threat? Uh, let's take another question. Can you take the microphone to this side? Thank you. Um, given the Baltic states are so difficult to defend, should we be encouraging Sweden and uh, Finland to join NATO, or uh, at least accepting them if they want to? Okay, and pass it to the front, please. Thank you. Uh, is cooperation with Russia a viable option right now, and can we trust Putin? 
What was that? We, we like the questions to be short and uh, straightforward. Yes, indeed. Thank you. All right. Okay. Nathan, where are the threats coming from? What about enlarging in the Baltic and in, in the Scandinavian states and, and Putin? Do you trust them? Who would like to go first? You, you, you take them. I'll work. Okay. Whichever is um, over, except for the first one. The current philosophy in NATO is that NATO has essentially uh, not one but several missions. Uh, the traditional fundamental mission is, of course, territorial defense. So those who feel that their territorial integrity is threatened by whomever, by whatever, uh, will place emphasis on, on, on this part. Then. There is, uh, there, there is the element of cooperative security, uh, of working with, with allies, uh, of conflict management. That's what we did in, for example, in Afghanistan now for the, for the last um, uh, decade or decade and, 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 and a half. Um, uh, it may well be that some NATO members, let's say Portugal uh, or Spain, may feel less directly threatened by certain activities of the Russian Federation than, say, Poland or the Baltic states. But this is an alliance, and if a member of the alliance feels threatened, uh, that's what the alliance is there to do, namely to provide reassurance and protection uh, and to make sure that uh, each and every member of the alliance uh, uh, feels that this alliance is doing its job of guaranteeing territorial integrity. Um, some people are currently saying that uh, the alliance would maybe need to protect uh, or to offer more reassurance to Turkey because Turkey is so close to the Syrian conflict. That may be yet another uh, area where uh, reassurance uh, may be required. So I think there there are plenty of missions for NATO at this moment, even if you leave aside for, for a moment uh, Afghanistan or other faraway conflict management issues. And, uh, and, and, and Finland and Sweden, well, if you apply my three-question uh, test, you would uh, probably come to the conclusion that uh, Finland and Sweden appear to, ha to have a pretty solid majority consensus, maybe not to a total consensus, but a, st a very strong majority that is now emerging in f rather in favor of NATO enlargement. Would the NATO members, if Finland and or Sweden um, uh, send in an application, uh, would NATO members be united in inviting these two countries, my guess would be it's always not a good idea to answer hypothetical questions if you're a diplomat, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a retired diplomat, so I can do that. Uh, uh, my guess would be yes. So uh, the question is, would, the, would you want to answer the third test question in the affirmative, namely, would their membership... Um, in the North Atlantic Alliance, enhance European security as a whole. Well, maybe some Russians would disagree. But then again, maybe they wouldn't. 
Um, we'll have to see. I th the odds, I think, would be, as far as I can tell today, rather in favor if the Swedes and or the Finns actually wish to join, which so far they haven't, they haven't done. So that, that would need to be the first step. I, I'm going to answer, <clears throat> I'm going to say something about the second and third questions. On the second question, I, this is purely personal. First of all, it's for every country to decide what it wants to do. It's not for me or for anybody else to tell Finland and Sweden what they want to do. Uh, and it's for the members of the alliance thinking about it carefully in the light of Wolfgang's three questions to decide what they want to do. But speaking personally, I think I would feel a little bit less comfortable with a Europe that became black and white. I actually like the idea of having countries which are not members of the alliance. I don't think that um, uh, to, to divide Europe into so that <coughs> you finished up with only two categories of countries, either well, actually, no, I'm not sure. It would be because then I think the question of um, uh, what is the position of Ukraine, Georgia, and others becomes much more acute. Mm -hmm. um, if there is only <coughs> one option, either you are um, in NATO or what. Uh, so <coughs> for me, having the, the cooperation, as everyone knows well, between Sweden in particular and NATO... Uh, is particularly intense. Um, uh, Finland is an extremely reliable partner in almost every field that you, that you choose to name. Um, so for my part, I'm actually quite comfortable with this slightly more various Europe. If we finish up with there's only one option, and that is to join NATO, uh, then that puts the question that's rather difficult to answer in a rather stark way at the moment. So... Um, so maybe that's just me being a bit conservative, saying let's not change things. But um, I'd rather like these neutral countries have – these countries have actually done many good things with Europe, through Europe, for Europe from their current position. And Switzerland, of course, is the arch example of a country whose neutrality has been, I think, a general benefit to, to Europe as a whole. Um, is cooperation with Russia in general and Putin in particular possible? Well, of course it's possible. Um, uh, and we have the notable example of um, uh, the Iran nuclear negotiations uh, where Russia was always a useful, constructive con contributor. Not the most important of those doing the negotiation, but still important uh, and a country which has a border with Iran and therefore has very important interests there. So it's possible. Um, is it very obvious at the moment that Russia is a country to cooperate with? Well, there's been um, uh, uh, there have really been um, a lot of lies told and there have been a lot of promises broken um, and I don't think that that encourages people to cooperate uh, unless there is some very good other reason for cooperating. It's not the first country you think of. Now, there are good reasons for cooperating if uh, you're flying your aircraft over Syria and they're flying their aircraft over Syria. 
cooperation in those circumstances is, is really compulsory if you want to avoid some, some accident happening. Um, but for the rest, um, uh, any cooperation, I think, would have to be extremely uh, carefully thought through and carefully executed and taken step by step. Can I slightly disagree? Be my guest. Uh, I mean, it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a fundamental point, but um, we would not have achieved, uh, we the five plus one, the uh, result which is now on the table uh, of the Iran nuclear negotiations if the Russian Federation had not uh, played along, right? And they did, according to everything that I've heard from our negotiators. Yeah. Russia participated um, actually quite actively. Uh, so I think that my version of this assessment of cooperating with Russia would be uh, we need to examine carefully whether there are parallel or, you know, convergent interests, and in some areas they exist. In other areas they obviously don't exist, so uh, uh, we're smart if we seek to cooperate with Russia where, the, where there is an identifiable area of interest overlap. In the case of Iran, that was the case. We'll see whether any kind of overlap will emerge, for example, in the case of Syria. At the moment, it doesn't look so good, but maybe things might change there, too. Can I, can I push you a bit harder on this one? The question posed up here was not just about cooperation, but about trust. Mm -hmm. And Russia is, of course, a country that has signed an agreement with the Ukraine in which it promised territorial integrity in exchange for Ukraine giving up nuclear weapons. And is it possible, therefore, to, to build trust and rely on cooperative arrangements in that kind of context? Well, I was going to say not just that agreement. That's not the only agreement yeah. that um, Russia has signed any number of agreements with Ukraine, which, uh, for example, it signed the basing agreement in Crimea. Uh, that also is an agreement based on the assumption that Crimea is Ukrainian sovereign territory. Uh, and the, um, this kind of curious position in which the um, Russians um, officially deny that they've got forces in Ukraine, uh, but in practice uh, they know that they've got forces there, we know that they know, and they know that we know. It's stupid. <laughs> um, uh, this really doesn't promote any kind of trust at all. So if there's a subject which is somewhere away from this, that there's a crisis in the South Pacific, and for some reason we have a common interest, then, then that's great. Um, but, uh, uh, but trust is, I think, about as low as it can be. Okay, good. Let's take another round of questions, please. Let's start here in the centre, up there. I'll come down in a moment. Could you come to the front, please, There's in the light blue top? Um, uh, my question is regarding the public opinion of uh, in Russia of the West, because um, generally, I mean, I come from Russia, and most Russians they like the West. They like German cars. They like French food. They like to send their kids here to study. And Russian businessmen love 
trading with uh, Western businessmen. Uh, but over the past couple of years, uh, even members of what we would consider the liberal opposition in Russia, so people who do not support Putin's policies, uh, they and a majority of other Russian people have been upset by the West and its foreign policy because uh, they're not only upset with the failures in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, they also don't understand why the United States, for example, speaks of human rights when its weapons deliveries to the Free Syrian Army end up in the hands of ISIS or Al-Qaeda affiliates, and now they don't understand why the U.S. is meddling in Russia's backyard in Ukraine. Uh, so my question is, uh, how can the West improve its image in Russia? Because uh, in the 90s, the West had a very positive image, and uh, lately this image has suffered heavily. And I tell you from experience, it's not just because of state propaganda, it's also because of the factual events that were happening. Thank you. Great, thank you. Could you take it back? There's a lady in two rows behind. One after the other. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to pick up on Professor Smith's point about the internal crises um, and ask whether we're not being a bit complacent about the problems that we have within Europe. The walls that are going up um, within EU states are surely just a symbol of a much longer and a deeper crisis about identity, really. And I, I think we have to wonder just how normative the EU ever was and just how normative it can continue to be. Thank you. I had a question about, um, well, if the panel would like to comment on the success or otherwise of the European neighborhood policy. In general. Okay, in the context of, of the former Soviet Union. Good. And then we'll take one more that right down there and then... I'm afraid I'll come back. In Thank you. Um, with more and more powers being delegated to the EU in the past decades, do you think that it's desirable that the EU becomes stronger as a military union? And if so, what should then be the relations between you and NATO? Thank you. Okay. Karen, do you want to kick us off on this one? Uh, um, <laughs> I was, uh, yeah... I think, in fact, part of the problem with Russia is um, that there isn't a non-hypocritical or an unhypocritical foreign policy out there. I mean, they are all, in fact, by definition, in fact, you could argue that most foreign policies, well, all foreign policies are hypocritical. You cannot possibly do everything that you promise to do because when you're faced with reality, actually, you have to make harder choices than perhaps you thought. Um, so we're sort of in this, you know, this kind of relative problem of relativity and whether or not anybody's telling the truth and all the stories going back and forth, which I think actually is a serious issue, uh, encountering how do you then build a case um, uh, in favor of a more uh, sort of the, the liberal internationalist uh, dream. Uh, and uh, related to that is normative power Europe. No, we never did have one. Uh, I've written about this at ad nauseum, um, uh, but uh, there we go. Uh, EU as a military power, actually, I would say something here, which has to do, I think, with the, um, uh, the issue of the relations uh, with NATO. It, it isn't, I mean, there is this kind of federalist dream which ends up with EU as a military power. In other words, once you've started this integration snowball going down the the hill, you end up with basically a super state. Um, 
but it doesn't have to be that, and that's where the gray, perhaps rather than the black and the white, but the gray comes, comes in. The EU could remain um, a more or less civilian power. I mean, in other words, it could, which, but that would be dependent, of course, in cooperation across institutions when you wanted to do things like peacekeeping in, say, Mali or saving uh, civilians in Central African Republic and, and, uh, and whatnot. Um, but I don't think necessarily it has to end up uh, with the EU as a military uh, power. It could do things quite, uh, quite reasonably without uh, military power. On the ENP, I've also, uh, I also have uh, 2P worth. Um, I think the problem with the European neighborhood uh, policy is that it was designed in the hub-and-spoke manner. In other words, um, the EU will give you, you, external country, third country uh, partner, well, not partner, neighbor, big difference. Um, a long list of things to do uh, immediately or in the near future, and we, uh, the European Union, will eventually, possibly, maybe, uh, let in your agricultural products in a very long time from now, and possibly, maybe, let in some of your people a very long uh, time uh, from now, but uh, that is the neighborhood policy, and surprise, surprise, it hasn't particularly uh, worked uh, very well. Uh, but this goes back to the, the conception of European order, which is based on two institutions constantly enlarging and then not really knowing how to deal with um, those countries to which it is not uh, going to uh, enlarge. But I think part of the solution, I think, would be, in fact, stronger regional uh, ties, a more balanced uh, relationship in which um, the EU wasn't dealing on a hub-and-spoke uh, basis, a on the basis of conditionality and whatnot, uh, with the partners um, or with the neighbors and started to think of them less as neighbors to whom um, lectures are given and more as partners with whom things could possibly uh, be done. But that's my 2P on the, on the ENP. <laughs> Let me. Um, <clears throat> I say something. I say something first about uh, about EU NATO, and um, uh, I I don't think of these two organisations really as being separate. It seems to me that they belong together, um, uh, that they that they operate together. NATO creates the environment in which the European Union can function, uh, and it's very satisfactory that someone else is doing that stuff. Um, uh, and um, actually, the organizations have completely different ethos. Um, and it's probably good because military stuff is dangerous and you need different way of thinking to do that. So I'm very happy with the EU and NATO being separate. Uh, um, and I think that they complement each other. And that they don't talk to each other, it's not true. Um, uh, when I was dealing with... Uh, when I was dealing with... with it sometimes doesn't work that well, but when I was dealing with Kosovo, um, we actually had very close cooperation with NATO. We explained when we thought there was going to be something that they needed to watch out for, we were going to do something in Kosovo that um, might impact on security, and we warned them about it. There was, a, there was a regular dialogue on that. I don't know how it works with other things. Um, they don't hold lots of joint meetings, and that is something for which everyone should be profoundly grateful um, uh, because it just doesn't work putting two organizations. But the executives cooperated with each other uh, pretty well whenever it was, was necessary. Um, uh, what I would like to see is I wouldn't like 
particularly to see the EU become a, a great military power. I don't believe it would do it well. It's got a different sort of, um, well, ethos, I said. It's got a different kind of, it's a different environment. Not very good for those kind of decisions. Um, uh, what I would like to see is I'd like to see more political discussion among the European Union members of NATO because I think from time to time we need to stop the USA from doing stupid things. <laughs> and it would, have been, it would have been much better if the European Union had had serious discussions about how to handle Iraq. I think that there was a, uh, there was a possibility of reaching a European consensus on Iraq uh, and dealing with the United States in some way jointly on that question. Um, and it's the job of the European Union to remain as close as possible to the, to the USA um, to, to sometimes um, get the USA to think again. I don't think that allies are doing their job properly unless they're doing that. Uh, and that's not the only case where I think that the, the EU uh, should have taken more responsibility in this kind of, in this political military area. Um, uh, and in that sense, um, I, I think that um, uh, a slightly more balanced relationship between uh, the European Union and the USA uh, might work better for Russia as well because the, the kind of, um, because we, we live next door to Russia and the USA doesn't. And we see Russia in slightly different terms. And um, uh, I think that one or two, of the, we've made lots of mistakes. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And I think that maybe with a slightly more, um, uh, a slightly more courageous European side to NATO, uh, maybe we could have avoided some of those mistakes. Do you, do you want to add something to this? Uh, a couple of brief yep. points, yes, if I may. Uh, uh, I sense among some of you a certain degree of skepticism about the uh, European Union and its capacity to manage crises and its capacity to survive and be relevant. Well, let me tell you, I don't, I don't see it this way. I think the European Union has um, time and again proven that those who predict the demise of the European Union or of the Euro system uh, have been wrong. Um, I'll, let's talk for just 30 seconds about the current refugee crisis. Of course it's a big mess. We are 28 sovereign countries with different kinds of immigration cultures or immigration non-cultures or anti-immigration views. Um, but we managed, believe it or not, to have a meeting in Brussels where on this extremely sensitive issue, a decision was reached, not a great decision, but a decision was reached by majority vote. Believe it or not. Revolution by majority vote. This is a major step forward for the European Union on, on an issue which is essential to the, to, the, to the identity of some of our member nations, which was why their resistance 
to such a decision about quotas and, and refugees to be welcomed was so strong. Uh, so I think the resilience and the capacity of the EU is much greater than some of you may think. And um, this is why I hope you will all try to make sure that Britain will not be foolish enough to leave but to stay in. Uh, second, <laughs> second, very briefly, on, on the defense issue, I take a slightly different view from what uh, Bob just said. Look, I mean, for decades, the United States, as the main provider of security uh, for Europe, the United States was skeptical about European uh, uh, intellectual games about a, a proper European defense identity. I think that has totally changed. Uh, the, the Pentagon would be happy today if they would see a European Union or 28 uh, member states of the European U Union capable of carrying a slightly more relevant share of what we define as the common burden. Ten years ago, the 28 member countries, we weren't even 28 at the time, but let's, uh, let's just leave that aside. We, we ended up uh, with a defense, collective uh, uh, defense expenditure of about 35 or so percent of what the United States spends uh, 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 know of what the total NATO expenditures are. Today, it's almost 10% less. In other words, it's, we're doing scandalously little mm -hmm. for the common defense, which is why the Americans are getting increasingly restless and unhappy about this entire arrangement. So what I think we should do, and let's not talk about such you know, long-term visions as the European Army. But I think what we should do right now, beginning in 2015 or in 2016, is get rid of the notion that our defense structures uh, deserve to be maintained, like in the 19th century, as very small units um, resourced nationally. You know, Austria buys 12 yeah. aircraft. Uh, at extremely high price per aircraft, maintains 12 aircraft at extremely high maintenance cost for 12 aircraft. Every one of you who has taken Economics 100, uh, uh, you know, uh, will understand that there is such a thing as economies of scale. If you buy 300 aircraft and have them maintained by, you know, one maintenance guy, uh, you will pay a lot less. In other words, there is a lot to be said for pooling and sharing, as we call it in the European Union, um, which would not make our defense budgets go up, but it would, it would make it possible for the Europeans collectively to create a bigger bang per buck, which also matters. Uh, maybe I can just <laughs> break in to say, no, we don't disagree at all. Okay. I mm -hmm. agree 100% on that. I'm skeptical on the European army. I'm strongly for the European rifle. Um, uh, I'm also not against the European Union doing some sorts of operations. I, the anti-piracy operation exactly. that was uh, a great has thing. been very successful, particularly because the European Union then gave money to people to build 
prisons to put the pirates in afterwards. Um, uh, uh, however, I still happy with keeping the really hard end of defense uh, in NATO. I think we want to keep the Earth. Anyway. So I, I don't think we disagree I think, that. I think you have time for one more good round. And let me come down to the, the lower house, uh, as it's also known. Are there any questions in the front rows? Yes, yes, I'll, I'll come back. I'll try to come back. But let's, let's take questions here. David. If I, may, if I may briefly come back to Robert's point about the creation of the OSC, uh, indeed the East and West gathered to discuss political military issue, but then the Soviet Union, interested in Western technology, say, oh, why don't we also talk about economic cooperation? Yeah. And then the West says, sure, let's add a third basket and talk about human rights and democracy. So my question is today, what can we give to Russia and what we should not give, and what can we ask in exchange following the same lo logic of the OSC creation? Could you pass it back to the gentleman in the grey shirt? Hi. Um, you grew up during the Cold War, and um, your parents grew up during the Second World War. Yet now our, um, yet, um, we grew up during, uh, after all of this. Um, such my question is, what are your hopes and concerns regarding the, the arrival of our generation into the political scene of European politics? Okay. I'll come to this side here, the gentleman in the white shirt. How much room should be given uh, to Russian perceptions when considering the further expansion of Western institutions? Because according to me, that's one of the biggest points to be considered when talking about crisis in European security. And if we come to this point, we can uh, find that the beginning of the crisis in European security has started when uh, Russia suspended its participation to the Treaty on Conventional Forces in Europe in 2007. These are, according to me, the deep roots of this crisis. Back there. Yes, please. Thank you. Going back to this free question scheme for a NATO enlargement, like, the proper answer for a first question would be a national referendum in Ukraine, which is obvious. I have little doubt of the outcome of this referendum, considering the continuing aggression and these weird perceptions of Russians about the backyards and stuff. But my question is, how united should the country be in that sense? Because the Russians' polls show the strong tendency of, like, bigger support for NATO coming inside. Uh, and the second thing is, would, this, would the voice of a nation be heard over the hysteria of the few with a nuclear weapon, in that sense? It's getting tight, but I'll, we'll I'll take the last question. You've been very patient. Thank you very much. Wouldn't European security be enhanced if uh, we get rid of uh, weapons of mass destructions from the continent unilaterally? All right. Okay. Pick your favorites. Okay. Who, get, who goes first? Do you want to go first? I, I was just going to point out, actually, on a NATO enlargement and public support uh, for joining it, it has been questionable right from the beginning. I mean, Spain had to have a referendum. Greece was always... Um, 
uh, not uh, fully supportive of its own uh, membership um, uh, in uh, NATO. And in the 1990s, in fact, the discussion was that if um, that you, uh, regarding that third criteria, whether it was going to do European order, um, uh, be positive for European order, that if Russia was opposed, it wouldn't be positive for uh, European order. But then it was pointed out that if Russia was opposed, then you were giving Russia a veto on uh, NATO uh, enlargement, and that was unacceptable. And so, therefore, the, the process um, uh, continued. But I would, I would you know, uh, Macedonia... <laughs> has been uh, knocking on the door for quite some time, hasn't been um, uh, allowed in. And, you know, there are issues, I think, with NATO enlargement that um, are quite uh, problematic. But, again, it comes back to the fact that we based the, the post-Cold uh, War European order on the enlargement of two core institutions, the EU and NATO, and that is sort of the model that we have, and it's very difficult, evidently, uh, to think um, of other ways of organizing uh, uh, Europe, uh, for example. So it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that we constantly then are talking about the enlargement of the institutions rather than, say, other <coughs> fiddling with the European neighborhood policy or, or uh, whatever. Anyway, I'll pass it on to you. Okay. Wolfgang, would you like to go next? Um, I'll, um, I'll try to come up with an answer to the um, question regarding the three baskets of uh, OSCE. Um, very simply, I think we have uh, to take a fresh look at all three baskets. We shouldn't drop any of the three from our agenda. It's obvious what uh, the issue, uh, issues are in the first basket political and military security. We've been talking about it all evening. Uh, in the economic uh, uh, um, second basket area, I think there are some old issues which existed in the 1970s when the three-basket uh, approach was created, uh, namely access to technology and trade uh, and, and so on and so forth. There are some new issues, future issues, which, uh, remember, OSCE is not only Western Europe and Russia. It's also Kazakhstan. In other words, today, of course, the, the big question is, what about China? What about the Silk Road? Uh, is that on our agenda? Uh, the, 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 the new dynamics of, of Euro-Atlantic and Eurasian economic um, perspectives. I can only throw out the questions. I can't give you answers, but I think these are big issues, potentially big issues, potentially also uh, issues with an enormous potential for co cooperative um, you know, approaches. And finally, in, in, in the area of the human dimension, uh, again, I think there, is, uh, there are some old issues the, the classic human rights issues, freedom of speech, etc. But there are new issues also, which weren't even on the agenda in, in, in Helsinki and not even in 1990 when, uh, uh, when we had the famous Charter of Paris. Think of cyber. Think of cyber. Think of, uh, uh, of the kinds of privacy versus 
security issues that uh, are very new. So all of this, I think, uh, merits to be at least examined as possible items on the agenda on, on, on a new east-west agenda in the context of the uh, of the uh, OSCE. Um, I leave all the other questions to Bob. Well, I'm actually going to, I think, I can't, not sure if I remember them all, but I think I'm going to answer all of the questions, but rather quickly. First of all, um, getting rid of WMD, that's really nuclear weapons. Actually, I don't like the term weapons of mass destruction because really it's only nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction biological weapons, chemical weapons, very dangerous, very nasty, but if you want mass destruction, it's nuclear weapons. Uh, getting rid of them, I think that there are a lot, there's a lot to be said for reductions, but what you can't do is you can't uninvent them. If you had a world in which all nuclear weapons were destroyed, the first thing that would happen would be somebody in their basement would start making a nuclear weapon. So it's actually better... Like it or not, they're there. Um, uh, and uh, for my part, uh, well, the point of having them is that if you don't have them, somebody else is going to have them, and that's going to be dangerous. And my, but I, I also believe that one should keep nuclear weapons there, as the saints used to keep a skull on the desk to remind them of death, to remind yourself of the consequences of starting a war um, because there is always a risk when you start a war that it ends with a nuclear destruction. But there are others who think differently. Second, on, I, this is just a quick reflection on the three baskets. Um, uh, the second basket was, was added. It didn't it made actually a big difference because one of the things, it wasn't so much the work done in the basket, but was after 75, trade with Eastern Europe boomed. Um, the third basket, the human rights, uh, the main, there were two things that happened as a result of this. First of all, a lot of dissidents got much more support from the West and they all got locked up. Um, did this change any of the countries? No, basically. These were very courageous people. They should be admired. Did they change anything? The answer was no. The changes were made by Mr. Gorbachev. When the changes had been made, the people who had been dissidents had a legitimacy uh, which nobody else had, and it was extremely fortunate that they were there. But did the third basket itself really change things? No. What changed things actually was the second basket, because with the addition of trade, all of the countries of Eastern Europe got deep in debt and found it much more difficult to maneuver with the West, and it gave the West a lot of leverage. The, on the, the question of, um, of uh, Russia and the, the perception, Russia and the West, I agree with Karen's answer. You have to ask yourself, what would be the alternative? And I tried, when I spoke at the beginning, to say, well, one can imagine an alternative, but you would have had to have created new pan-European institutions which would have had to be trusted by Russia and the West, given authority. Um, uh, and I think one could still think about that. I think it's not, it's not impossible. Not today, not tomorrow, 
but eventually, um, uh, for example, NATO intervened in, in the Balkans, not because that was NATO's mission, which was a defensive mission, it was because there was no other body that was capable of doing it. You can actually imagine a pan-European uh, security arrangement which would put forces into those kind of positions. Um, uh, I think you'd have to change the politics quite a lot. It doesn't make sense today, but in the long run, I don't see that such an idea is, is ridiculous. And then what, do we th what uh, hopes or fears do we have for your generation, this generation here, well, I must say, I think it's really scary. I'm sometimes feel, I sometimes feel quite happy that I'm, uh, that I'm old and somebody else can deal with the, uh, the new technologies and the ultra-competitive world that we live in. I think that we really had it easy compared with, with you. And if you want to know what it's going to be like, I would recommend that you buy some science fiction comics because... <laughs> When I was a kid, I used to read a comic called The Eagle, and in this you saw people in the far distant future um, using telephones in which they could see the other person speaking. <laughs> and this was, this was so far in the future you couldn't imagine. The only thing was that the telephone wasn't something small and convenient you kept in your pocket. It was a big, clunky thing with lots of wires. So we've gone far beyond science fiction. But I think science fiction is the best guide of uh, what your life is going to be like. All right. Okay. Um, we'll obviously have to consult some committees about whether we should make changes to our reading lists at the LSE. Um, but we'll get all straight on to that. Um, I think it's clear the Ukraine crisis, Russia's territorial expansion, is a turning point, is a watershed moment in the post-Cold War era in Europe. We thought we had a plan in Europe after the wall came down. We thought we knew how to spread peace and democracy. This was a wake-up call. It was, you might say, a Mike Tyson kind of moment. Mike Tyson, the American boxer, strategist, who once famously said, everyone has a plan until I punch them in the mouth. <laughs> it's... It's, it's that, that sort of wake-up call that I think Europe has received. We have more thinking to do. We are very grateful to our distinguished panelists today to have given us an insight into their thinking. Please join me in thanking them.